yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time imon irok the yen of chacht erachor. Agus suligam a makan sha gurfeder erachor inuik kiart len of winter fein. Skilti fis turmi. Tashe dochretche nach vetoch ara egornamian on kestchen ekol. Vien talam aginam griv arkar nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. It's 20 years into the future. Robots are cleaning our beaches and rivers. Advanced technology now lets us mine asteroids and collect materials on the moon. And advanced countries now give a universal basic income to all citizens, eliminating poverty and allowing people to focus more on jobs they prefer to do. Does this sound like a fantasy? Well, not to my guest this week. Who's the futurist Brett King? Together with Dr. Richard Petty, he has written a book called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, how inequality, AI and climate will usher in a new world. Brett, you're very welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy to be here, Adrian. Thanks for having me on. Now, Brett, the book you wrote with Dr. Richard Petty, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, it's a fascinating book. It has an awful lot of ideas in it. You go through a huge range of topics. Very, very good read for anybody who's looking to brush up on the big issues now and into the future. But I'm going to ask you first about a couple of the dominant industries that you think might uh, crop up in the next few years. And one of them is asteroid mining. <laughs> It's funny you uh, picked that one, but um, yeah, asteroid mining is something that is uh, being looked at uh, quite seriously, actually, in respect to, you know, we do have the technology to do this. Um, we have visited asteroids uh, recently with, with probes from JAXA and NASA. We've got one uh, heading towards um, one of the more interesting candidate asteroids right now called Psyche 16. Um, it's an asteroid that is worth something like, uh, you know, I'd have to check mm. the numbers, but I think it's $100 quadrillion in terms of it's the wealth of rare earth materials or, um, you know, uh, I guess we'd call them rare asteroid or rare space materials in an asteroid um, that today where we have trouble mining or um, issues getting access to uh, on the earth. That would materially change the world's economy if you suddenly, you know, bring an asteroid that, has more wealth than 100,000 years of economic activity on the earth in, in one go. So there's, there seems to be um, strong incentives to do that. In terms of the core technologies that we've used to get there, um, obviously the cost of space transportation has come down considerably in recent times in, in no small part due to SpaceX. 
Uh, SpaceX has reduced the cost to orbit by 98% over the last uh, 18 years or so. Um, you know, in the Apollo days, it cost $50,000 to get a kilogram of mass into orbit. Um, you know, the Falcon 9 regularly do, does that at about uh, the $1,000 to $1,200 range. The Starship program they're working out on at Boca Chica today uh, promises a cost to orbit of $100 per kilogram to orbit. So we could put 100 tons into orbit of equipment and we could definitely put enough fuel to get out to the asteroid belt and uh, uh, attempt some mining. It'll probably be done with robotic uh, technology. Then the question is, do we drag that asteroid back to the Earth and mine it in low Earth orbit or what do we do? Um, but um, you know, companies like Google's Moonshot program and others are really looking at investing in this technology. It's longer term, but mm. certainly within the next uh, 20 to 30 years, we would see the first asteroids being mined, I believe. Similarly, you mentioned in situ resource utilization on Mars and the moon. You think that there's a chance that we might get to Mars? Well, you know, we've been dreaming about this since the earliest days of science fiction. Um, you know, it's the closest Earth-like planet to us. Um, you know, v Venus uh, isn't really a candidate because it's too hot. Um, Mars... Um, you know, it's the equivalent of sort of living on Antarctica. There is, we know there's water there. Um, we, um, you know, apparently Matt Damon has taught us we can farm potatoes there. Um, no, but... Um, yeah, in, just in, a bit dodgy fertilizer, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> but honestly, um, you know, it's it's a natural extension of humanity. Musk, uh, his uh, intent behind this is acting as an insurance policy against a extinction level event of which, uh, you know, the earth has faced those multiple times previously. So it makes sense to protect intelligence and protect humanity. Um, it's just a question of... Of will uh, you know I, I don't think there's any question that we could find say a million people to go to Mars um, the question then becomes what would we do on Mars um, and the objective there is long-term sustainability so one of the things we talk about in the book is how would you it's actually in the closing chapters is what would the Martian economy look like compared with the Earth's economy and it's a good lesson for us in terms of sustainability because that economy and all the people working in that economy wouldn't be geared towards profitability or uh, you know GDP uh, um, growth they would be geared towards sustainability having enough um, you know air water and food to be able to survive if the supply sh ships stop coming from earth um, and that sort of sustainable prosperity doctrine is in general um, you know uh, something that we should take very seriously particularly with emerging climate change and the impact that's going to have on the planet food scarcity you know the supply chain difficulties we face now and things like that we often prioritize profits over the health of our citizens. And that's, I think, one lesson that, um, you know, the pandemic and these future crises that are coming is going to teach us. On food, you also uh, mention lab-grown meat, fish and chicken. I think we are some way down the road in terms of lab-grown meat. Do you think that's going to be a, a bigger thing in our lives in 10 or 20 years? I, well, I think just, you know, the concept of killing animals to eat food eventually will be seen as barbaric, you know, not that I'm, you know, I eat meat. I had a steak last night. Um, but um, having said that, we can produce something biologically indistinguishable um, from 
you know, naturally grown proteins in a lab. And eventually that uh, process will become uh, cost effective enough that it's no longer viable to grow cows and slaughter them for, um, you know, uh, beef as an example, right? Mm. Um, and also we will be able to refine this process so the carbon footprint of production of lab-grown meats is far far lower. And we could even make those meats theoretically healthier for us uh, through that process. So it, it, from a technological and scientific point of view, it seems more than reasonable. I can tell you won't be running for election in Ireland anytime soon. I can tell you there would be marches on the street from the farmers' organisations um, if they heard something like that. You know, but but let's let's have a look at that because you know um, I, I get it. But if you look at agriculture um, in in uh, you know Ireland. Um, you know, agriculture accounted pre-industrial age for somewhere between you know sixty and sixty-five percent of all labour was agricultural based, um, and today it's less than two percent of the workforce involved in that. So um, we're talking about an industry that has constantly changed and adapted. And while I appreciate their passion, um, you know, maybe they can you know farm something other than cattle. Um, sure. You know, and arable land use is going to continue to be a problem with with global warming. One of the interesting side effects of global warming will be, for example, that the Bordeaux crop failures will be high in the Bordeaux in the mid 2030s. About 90, 60 to 90 percent of, of vineyards will fail their crops, um, which will mean that Ireland may become a wine producing country <laughs> in the future. Oh dear, um, that that would be quite something to behold. I'm not sure what kind of wine we'd produce. Um, the book refers to techno-socialism through it. And there is a very broad definition you have on depending on the topic throughout. But one of the things you do mention is the prospect of tech trillionaires emerging. You even mention uh, a handful of them, Elon Musk, of course, who is currently the richest uh, man in the world, Jeff Bezos, Jack Ma, maybe not so much. There is though a question, and it relates to other parts of your book about you know acceptance and equity whether we will, as a society, allow tech trillionaires to emerge? This is obviously a, a reasonable debate to have. You know, the wealth capture by billionaires, the wealth capture by large corporations, is it really efficient? You know, um, like Bezos, what's he doing with his wealth? Well, he's not necessarily giving away. He's accumulating more wealth. Um, you know, you could argue that he could never spend enough money to ever run out of cash again. Um, but even just take Apple with $300 billion in cash reserves. Is, is that money sitting in a bank account really doing good for society? You know, Apple's produced some phenomenal products, but have they solved some of the more intractable problems that we face in the world today? Um, so the, the question really comes about is that it is the, the wealth capture by an increasingly small percentage of the population um, a reasonable use of capital for the cause of humanity as a species? And the answer to that is no. And um, the inequality that we face today is, again, an illustration of the fact that this system just isn't working for the bulk of the planet. You know, uh, in the United States, uh, the, the richest 1% own more than the bottom 90% of Americans. It's the greatest inequality um, the US nation has ever seen. It's probably the greatest inequality we've seen prior to the Middle Ages, uh, um, you know. And, uh, the, you know, we have to ask the question, what is the economy for? And, and economy- in another part of the book, you do also point out that there is a difference between inequality and poverty. You posit that it's possible that we might eliminate poverty 
while having even greater yes. levels of inequality. Well, that's as you know, the overall wealth has grown. Um, you know, the, the the pie has grown, but the distribution of that has not necessarily improved. It's actually worsened. But yeah, so it's we, not that you're starving. You just you yeah. just really uh, don't don't have. We'd made tremendous progress since the uh, um, the late 1800s in terms of reducing extreme poverty. China actually over the last 20 years completely uh, removed extreme poverty, um, which is um, the category of people living on less than $2 a day, right, um, as far as the UN's classification of that. Um, but unfortunately, during the pandemic, we added 150 million people to that number, which is the first time since 1850 that extreme poverty has increased. So there's an interesting stat. Wow. Where, where were those people, do you know? I mean, rough up areas the of the world. The 150 million mm. people, um, mainly in sort of poor food producing countries where, right. you know, um, at, you know, agrarian based societies, frankly, um, you know, developing yeah. nations. On a related note, one of the other things you think might happen, in fact, you urge should happen, is that universal basic income in advanced nations. You said it, it must happen uh, here. It, do you think there has been any advance in that argument in recent years? I've been writing about it on and off, mm -hmm. and I've interviewed many people about it, most of whom I have to say in the tech space have always struck me as being a little libertarian. They tend to be rich libertarians who forward uh, this idea. And here in Europe, many people are wary of it because as, as a social democracy, there is a suspicion that it's just a libertarian way of cutting them off from other benefits that they might currently get. How do you see that panning out in future? Well, uh, you know, I mean, most tech entrepreneurs that are growing businesses support UBI and they do that because they see where these technology businesses are going. Um, the use of artificial intelligence means employing less and less humans. Um, so uh, you could argue that the intent of artificial intelligence, the reason we are creating it, is to remove humans from the workforce. Now, that doesn't mean we won't work in the future. It just means we won't have to work to be paid. That's the, the intent behind UBI, that the work that we will do will be things we're passionate and excited about and things that are mission-based and so forth, rather than work that puts food on the table or puts a roof over our head. Um, because ultimately, um, you know, what automation AI, you know, highly automated societies do is they seek to remove labor participation as a component of supply and demand. Um, and so ultimately, we don't really have a choice. It's either you let millions of people starve and die or you have UBI. Right. Mm. Um, the, the argument that, yes, but AI is going to create you know, new jobs that will replace the old ones. You know, that's the argument that is that is true for the dot com, as an example, is not necessarily applicable to artificial intelligence because AI is more akin to the change that we saw during the Industrial Revolution than the dot com boom. Um, having said that, the initial effects of AI will be both technology unemployment and labor shortages in technology fields because um, you know, most economies aren't training enough STEM workers to fill those jobs that are emerging in the 21st century. Um, Ireland's probably doing a better job than many in respect to that. And obviously, you know, it's become a big uh, tech landscape uh, for the tech firms. Um, but if you look at the United States, for example, I mean, they've 
consistently since the 90s had to import technology skills with the H-1B visa just to grow their technology companies. Now that immigration is sort of falling out of fashion from a policy perspective, um, they just got labour shortages because their STEM programs are insufficient um, to supply the resources needed for 21st century economies. Have you heard the news? The Irish Independent has a new podcast. We're not in the fairy tale business as journalists. We're in the truth business and the question were there. 20 minutes, five days a week, the Indo Daily takes you beyond the headlines and into Ireland's most talked about stories. So 25 years on, people are absolutely fascinated again with this case. The Indo Daily podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, independent.ie and wherever you get your podcasts. If artificial intelligence and robots represent a short-term break in employment for a number of people, the book actually has another proposal, which is to tax AI and robots. And the first thing that pops into one's head might be, does that mean the Dyson robotic thing that's going around? Is that going to be taxed? How broadly do you think that would work? Uh, well, we actually propose that as one of the mechanisms potentially to pay for universal basic income, but we propose others, uh, you know, at the same time. Um, but Bill Gates is a proponent of this, for example. You know, if you think about it, um, nine of the 10 largest companies in the world today are technology companies. The the mm-hmm. only exception is Saudi Aramco. Um, and Um, Those technologies employ far less people than the top 10 companies of 40 years ago, as an example. Mm -hmm. And that's because productivity is based on software and processing cycles in these companies rather than improving the efficiency of the human workforce. So if you extend that analogy out another 40 years, then all of the most valuable companies in the world will employ very few people because that's the way you generate the highest profits and returns. And that's what the marketplace is pushing. So, you know, the market wants very highly profitable companies that don't necessarily have high labor costs. Uh, And that's a functional problem of the way capitalism essentially works. So we have to think about how we transition to that sort of state. And one of the ways may be saying to companies, for every human worker that you displace, you have to um, you know, provide from the profits that your machines generate, um, you know, job programs that support these people and transition them into new skills or whatever the case may be. Um, but, it, you know, coming out the other side of this sort of AI uh, boom, we will have, of course, climate, which will be a massive employer um, through to the end of this century. Um, you know, we're talking about geoengineering the planet, building seawall defences around, um, you know, our bigger cities, um, you know, carbon sequestration, um, greening the energy grid, building climate resilience into infrastructure. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, decades and decades of work that's going to need to be done to adapt humanity to this sort of new climate reality. I mean, I guess we have to accept it, though, first, don't we? Because in, in the COP26 summit, it's not just the likes of China and Russia or Saudi Arabia, you know, big players that stay away from key talks. It's also countries like Australia, for one. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Australia. Australia is abysmal at this. I, I'll be straight up as Aussie. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked at how bad the climate I, policy is I, in Australia. I wonder why. It's such a big country. It has a relatively low population, an awful lot of land, huge resources, huge minerals. Of all the advanced countries that I would think that might be well-placed. country for, you know, solar 
as an example. Right. You know, um, you know they're the, they're one of the largest solar silica producers. We have a lot of sun in Australia. Um, you know, a lot of open spaces that can be used for solar farms. You know, um, you know th- there's there's a very strong argument for it. Um, but ultimately, Australia suffers from a very similar issue to the United States, where the lobbying groups of fossil fuel uh, companies really dictate energy policy in in those markets. And that um, the largest single group of representatives at COP26 were fossil fuel companies, bigger than any collective uh, group of any others. And that's that's really the core, one of the core problems here. Given that, and given that a core theme throughout the book is largely an optimistic one, what's possible, the opportunities that are there for us at many stages, you know, during the book, it, it says, you know, if we grasp this opportunity, here's what we can do. I guess if you were to throw a pessimistic stone in there, you'd say, if you look at COP26 and you look at, you know, the countries that are holding out and you look at the the lobby interests you've just mentioned, the real problem here is our own nature, isn't it? Absolutely. Or it's what we allow, what we've allowed to happen. So in many mm. ways, the the book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, more is about philosophy of what is humanity, what's our purpose on the planet, and how should we, uh, you know, really optimise the existence. And a lot of the, one of the problems with the current mode of capitalism we have, and we don't say to get rid of capitalism we just say to change the levers and incentives that capitalism has but one of the problems with it is we create competition competition at individual level for salaries competition at a, at a corporation level for market share at a market level for trade you know this is the, the competition that we we've created um, but that competition is often inefficient um, because as we've seen the the most successful periods of innovation the human human society has had has been high periods of cooperation so for example you know the pandemic response in terms of creating the vaccine is a great example of that um you know the apollo project during the 60s and 70s getting um, men to the moon um you know the uh, human genome project um you know building the great wall of china um you could even argue the second world war uh, you know the massive advance in technology yes to two sides but large groups of people um working together. And so um, what we endorse or, or posit as the better option in the book is that capitalism gets reframed as competing for the future of the species, competing for the planet, competing competing for humanity and the other species that are on the planet. Um, and that that changes the focus of capitalism in terms of outcomes, that first and foremost, the economies should be you know, sustainable and look after the basic needs of citizens first and foremost, and then we can worry about economic growth and those other things that uh, are traditional economic metrics. There's a nice handy chart uh, which compares Ludistan to techno-socialism to Faildistan to neo-feudalism with uh, different characteristics of each. Where do you think we in Europe are at the moment on that list? Uh, that's a good point. Um, you know, like one of the issues is obviously um, we have right now pushback against big tech, but that's just regulating big companies. I wouldn't necessarily call that Ludistan. But when artificial intelligence starts to take jobs, 
The potential may be to try and um, restrict artificial intelligence or even ban it. Um, I think some economies would look at that. Um, I think actually Europe more broadly is probably going to tend towards one of two scenarios, either fail to stand where we debated for far too long and the biggest uh, challenges hit us and, and we were like, we didn't know, you know, but yeah, we've been debating whether AI is going to happen or not for 30 years. We're debating whether climate change is man-made when it really doesn't matter. Ultimately, you know, um, climate change is going to reshape the way we live and we should be preparing for that rather than debating who caused it. That That's immaterial. So fail to stand is one scenario, but techno-socialism where, you know, we have more sort of uh, democratic socialist uh, type outcomes. Um, but the, the key of techno-socialism is that it's economically right-wing because we we show how we can dramatically reduce the cost of government, um, but it's unashamedly left-wing in terms of social causes because now we can afford to fix those social problems because the cost of government and resource allocation is so low in a highly automated society. So I think um, Europe is probably going to be more comfortable with that shift, whereas in the United States, it's more like neo-feudalism today. Corporations set the rules in terms of policymaking, you have that big gap in terms of inequality. There's no sign that there's a real intent to change that. So that could get baked in for the next 50, 100 years as a permanent feature of that economy, meaning that the rich get longevity treatments that so can live to 150 and they have all the best technology. Um, you know, they have access to all this great stuff. But, you know, if you're not in that group of, of the richest segment of society, then, you know, you, you're left on your own, essentially. Um, so they're more broadly, as you say, the four uh, quadrants. We use two axes to define that sort of inclusive, inclusive collective economies versus exclusionary and divided or individualistic economies and chaotic futures versus planned futures or dystopian versus utopian sort of view. And that sort of places uh, these four scenarios on, on that uh, quadrant. And, and all four of those will probably happen at some point in time somewhere in the world. What we argue is the only rational course out of those four is techno-socialism because it, it's the optimal outcome for everybody. Well, from your perspective, the beauty of being a futurist is... Never being wrong today. <laughs> and on that note, I will tell you that the book is called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, How Inequality, AI and Climate Will Usher in a New World. And it's by Brett King, who has been our guest today, and Dr. Richard Petty. Brett, thank you very much for joining the podcast. You are very welcome, Adrian. Thank you for having me and uh, thanks for uh, um, supporting the book. And from me, Adrian Weckler, who is the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. That's all we have time for this week. So I will talk to you at the same time next week. Bye-bye. Have you heard the news? The Irish Independent has a new podcast. Thousands of people who work in the events industry are making more noise than ever. But are they being listened to? 20 minutes, five days a week, the Indo Daily takes you beyond the headlines and into Ireland's most talked about stories. Two gangs, 18 people killed, families torn apart. The Indo Daily podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, independent.ie and wherever you get your podcasts.